The climate is changing. So are we. I'm Laura Lynch, and I host What on Earth? That's CBC's Climate Solutions podcast. Twice a week, we take you around the world to find the people who are trying to build a better future for all of us. We explore Indigenous science, new technologies. We talk openly about mental health and climate anxiety. We also take your smart questions all the time. Come find What on Earth wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is Now or Never. I'm Trevor Deneen. And I am Ifi Chiwetelu. And this is the sound of a man on a mission. You got to put the bin. So this recycling bin is over top, you see? Yeah. It's got to be clipped over top. And this one's got to be, the garbage bin's got to be real tight. So in theory, there's no nook for them to get in. Listen, they're playing checkers, you're playing chess. <laughs> That's true. That's true. This is Andrew Fung, a voice you may recognize as Kimchi from TV's Kim's Convenience. But right now, standing with him in the laneway of his Toronto home in front of his garbage and organic waste bins, he is no TV star. He is a person obsessed. We're the only people on the block with this strap contraption, yeah. and other bins aren't attacked. Like, our bin, we, we unclipped the night before, and they got at it. Like, they were waiting for that moment. I feel like I feel like Will Smith and I am legend sometimes. <laughs> like they're watching in the shadows. Yeah. I love that we haven't named that we're talking about raccoons because right now it just sounds like you're under siege. <laughs> yeah. It's it's raccoons and I feel like it is targeted. I feel like it it, it is me they're going after. Andrew's battle against the raccoons that keep breaking into his waste bins, it's been going on for years. One night a couple of years ago, I was driving home, so I was backing in, and it was late, so I rolled down my windows so I could see out the, the mirrors. And I remember pulling up, it's like 3 in the morning, and I looked out the side window, and on top of the bin was a raccoon just staring at me. And I was like, oh, and I rolled up the window. I just looked at this raccoon, and it just stared at me back. I started knocking on the window, trying to get it to move. It didn't move. I honked the horn. Raccoon didn't even flinch. So I backed up walked past the raccoon went inside the house and that raccoon did not care like that raccoon eyed me down like this is my territory at first it was a nuisance we would come out and we would see that the recycling bin had been open and they got in and it's kind of like well that's not a big deal but then We'd find the driveway littered with, with, yeah. with, with compost, and we'd come out, and every week we'd have to grab like a broom and a dustpan and clean up all the food. And it, like, <laughs> you just want to get this food. I get it, the yeah. sweet, sweet compost food. Yeah. But you're not, like, it was cool when you weren't making a mess. Mm. You crossed the line. Like, I got to go out now and clean every week. Yeah. Your mess was getting really bad. And we tried um, a rock. That didn't work. They knocked the rock off. I tried a couple bricks. The bricks was being knocked off. Um, I found this online, and it's a bungee system that wraps around the entire bin. Clips. There's a whole contraption, and you gotta unclick it, mm -hmm. and you get in. Mm -hmm. And we've seen it where one time a raccoon was stuck, and the two other raccoons were opening the bin lid so that the one raccoon could get out. Tag team. They're tag team. There's a three-person team here doing this. Three raccoons. These raccoons dragged a full composting bin 12 feet from where it started. These aren't cute little creatures just getting in and eating. These are little monsters. Calculated. Calculated. They know what they're doing. 
do am I wrong in hearing just like a little bit of admiration for these raccoons in your voice? So like I I, I admire people who are hardworking, who are uh, they take on challenges, they never give up. These are these raccoons. And so I feel like I'm battling like people that like if they weren't raccoons, we'd be really good friends. Yeah. Uh, you didn't quite lot- latch this, oh, so I I'm gonna, latch- yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna hit that for you. There you go. It's good. It's a good job. Yeah. It's now Ify and Andrew versus the raccoons. The raccoons. Yeah, they're they're gonna come back. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like they're just toying with him at this point. Are, are, are you choosing? Are you team raccoon right now, Trevor Deneen? I don't, I'm not team raccoon. I'm just a realist, and I feel like they're winning. Listen, when you square off against nature, you have to make a choice. Do you push back? Do you embrace it? Do you cower in fear? Do you adopt a raccoon as your child? There are so many options. Which is why this week on Now or Never, we're going to be meeting people who are coming face-to-face with both animals and the elements and deciding how to respond. Somebody showed me a picture of a squirrel standing next to a Barbie bike, and I went, you know what? I'm going to start a plot. There he is. There he is. Do you see his tail? You see him? Oh, he's in the trees up there. Yeah, yeah he's there. He's there. He's coming closer. That's the closest he's been. Oh yeah, my gosh. there he goes. When the nature throws everything at you on a search and rescue, you just fight it. Fight it with all that you got. You put in your eff- effort not to wait for it to settle down because there's a human being out there that's lost. And then all of a sudden I was approached by another dog. And so I was looking for its humans, reached out and it just went poof and growling. And I was like, wow, that's not a dog at all. It was a coyote. This is now or never. Into the wild. <laughs> <laughs> Was that a lion? That's a that's a domesticated cat for sure. A very. I don't even know which one that was, but. <laughs> it is impossible to ignore the increasingly harsh and unpredictable weather playing out in all parts of the country this week. Flash floods and mudslides in BC, severe rainstorms across the Maritimes. But in many remote northern communities, living with extreme and unforgiving weather is just a way of life. It was a stormy night, blizzard. You can hardly, like, see when you go out. You can hardly see, like, 10 feet away. Wind chill was like minus 50. It was really cold. When their chief and council came up to me in my house, if there's a missing person at night, they come knocking to your door, they need help. We don't wait like 24 hours to go look for somebody. We go right away because of the elements. Redfern Wesley lives in Kasheshwan First Nation near the James Bay coast. He knows the land like the back of his hand. So when a hunter or snowmobiler doesn't come home, the first place people go is Redfern's doorstep. I was always that person that wanted to help, wanted to go. 
I've always went to ground search and rescue because I've lost a lot of uh, friends out in James Bay and on the river also, and in the winter time too. It's pretty difficult sometimes when you go look for somebody looking for a friend out there that you're never going to see again. It It is hard, the stuff that I deal with every day. I see those stuff once in a while when I go to sleep. It's hard. Despite how challenging it is, Redfern does this all the time. He's a longtime member of the Canadian Rangers, part-time Army reservist trained to respond to emergencies in remote communities. But there is one encounter with nature he will never forget. The one night he got the call that two people were missing out on the frozen tundra. It was storming, blizzard out there. You can hardly see. We started seeing tracks, skidoo trails, going out into the out into the bay, um, and I was tracking tracking them by uh, on the ice, sometimes snow on ice, and you can see the skis on the carbines on the ice once in a while. That's what I was using. Like I was stopping, whacking the trail, stopping skidoo. It took me out into the bay, like four miles. I told the other, the other rangers with me to stay behind me because I'm going to be in front all the time. You watch for my lights. I'll flash it when I, uh, when I see something, or you come right away. If I go through the ice, I'll flash you the bay it was partially frozen and you can see the snow like it clears up once in a while and it blows snow again and you can see the steam at the open water it was close and I keep telling my surgeons I think these guys are probably gone out into the open water I told them they must be in the water now and I kept uh, driving looking, stopping, tracking them by a uh, skidoo. All of a sudden I see something, something on the ground in front of me and my heart started beating, beating faster and faster when I got closer to it. And when I got closer, I recognized it. And I see a sled, it was upside down. All of a sudden I heard knocks on a, inside the sled it was it was them they survived they barely survived the weather so we started cover them with uh, sleeping bags they to keep them warm what do we do what do we do and the young people started panicking what do we do they're cold and they started like burn the sled burn it and we started burning the sled and we kept them warm for a while we were there for half an hour and we took them to the hospital in uh, Fort Albany and they survived that weather. Lucky, they were very, very lucky. If somebody didn't report it that they were missing, they would have been like bodies to recover. 
that's uh, what happened one time. One of my stories, one of my many stories on a search and rescue. When you're out in nature, when the nature throws everything at you on a search and rescue, you just fight it, fight it with your all that you got. You put in your eff- effort to deal with it, not to wait for it to settle down because there's a human being out there that's lost. I don't really think about my own safety when I do my ground search and rescue because because my adrenaline is running, running. But I'm starting to think about my health also because I'm starting to have grandchildren now. (laughs) Redfern is focusing more and more on passing down the skills he's learned from elders to young people in his community. He knows they will face new and greater challenges as the weather becomes even more unpredictable. Watching the weather, like the elders did when I was younger, they, were, they always watched the weather. It's getting different out there, really different right now. Because right now we don't have any snow in, in the middle of November. By the time of last year, I was already trapping. It takes a long, long time to know the the land. When you're out in a swampy area, it's not frozen. The lakes are not frozen. The creeks are not frozen. It's difficult when you have to go go out on a search and rescue like that. You have to be careful. It's very challenging every year. This is Now or Never. I'm Ifichi Wetelu. And I'm Trevor Deneen. And just like Redfern is watching the weather change in James Bay, People who live in British Columbia are seeing firsthand the effects that the current climate crisis is having on their province. It has many people concerned, not just about safety and the future of the natural environment, but about what the future could hold for their families as well. For 12 months, we've experienced the heat dome, the forest fires and the smoke, and the flooding. We were thinking of kids before we got married and now we're starting to question whether we would even want to have kids at all given just the year that we've had. Find out how a hike to see a melting glacier was the tipping point that made one couple question a major life decision. That is coming up later on the show. This is now or never, and I'm standing in front of a very large, picturesque window. Beside me is a tripod with a camera on it, and the lens is pointed right out the window. And behind the camera is... Debbie Vokey, waiting for that squirrel to show up. I know. 
Right now, it's a mini blizzard in Winnipeg, and that squirrel is battling against strong winds and the weight of expectation. There are some nuts waiting for her. Will she come get them? Will she take the chance to be photographed by Deb? Only time will tell. Trevor, are we in a nature documentary? I need you to shh. I need you to tell them. <laughs> You're going to scare away the squirrel. Okay. And Deb's pretty serious about getting this photo. It's clearing out there right now. I'm not hearing anything. But I don't think it'll take much time. Next thing you know, he'll show up. Deb Vokey is a squirrel photographer. Yes, you heard that correct. She photographs squirrels. Now she sets up intricate dioramas outside her kitchen window, and sometimes she'll wait for hours or even days to capture that perfect moment when he climbs right onto her set. I have had him doing laundry. I put out a washer and a dryer, and I've got a little ironing board, and I've got some clothes hanging up, and he stands up and he goes to get the peanut out of the washing machine. Well, now it looks like he's, you know, putting clothes in the washing machine. Yes, I did a scene where he's recycling. In his back lane, he's got his recycling bin and his his garbage bin, and he's got a, a bag and of... And the one where he's camping, and he's got his hand on his hamburger on his picnic table. How did I know that he was going to put his hand on the hamburger on the picnic table? That's not where the nut was. That's not where the peanut butter was. When they come into my diorama, I have no idea what they're going to do. I try to um, draw them to certain areas, but I never really know what he's going to do. I'm excited for this. I'm, I'm looking outside right now. I see there's a sled set up, a little mini sled. How big is that sled? Well, that sled's uh, somewhere around one-sixth scale. So he's around, that sled's around Barbie size. So I'm hoping to get him out there looking like he's, you know, maybe carting away a sled full of presents. To get a shot like that, because we're talking about a squirrel, a wild animal. How long are we going to have to sit here before we can capture this moment? Well, that's a question I really can't answer, but I've got to tell you, the colder it gets, the windier it gets, the less he comes around. Really? Yeah, for sure. I haven't even seen him today. What made you start taking pictures of squirrels? Well, I'm a nature lover to begin with, and uh, I'm a photographer, so I've done a lot of nature over the years. And uh, somebody showed me a picture of a squirrel standing next to a Barbie bike, and I went, you know what? I'm going to start a pro... There he is. There he is. Do you see his tail? You see him? Oh, he's in the trees up there. Yeah, yeah he's there. He's there. Yep. Oh, oh. He's fast as yeah, soon. He's, he's very fast. They move like lightning. That first movement that they do is like lightning for them. But yeah, there he is. I can tell sort of if he's ready uh, to come down to the table. And this guy's young and sketchy. He gets freaked out about the smallest things on that table. It takes him a while to go, okay, I think it's safe. It looks different. Oh, I I think I can go there. You speak of this squirrel like he's like one of your children. It's like you know so much about him. You're like, you know, it's puberty right now. He's going through a thing. (laughs) Yeah, you know, you really do get to know them. And I, you know, become very attached. And if he doesn't show up for, in a good weather day, if he's not been here for like six or seven hours, 
I'm like, oh, do I need to check the back lane? Is he dead? Like, did he get run over? Like, I start to get a little bit concerned when when things aren't going like usual. When the patterns change, I get a little bit concerned. Aww. I know. I wonder if he knows you love him so much. <laughs> I don't, well, I sure feed him enough. <laughs> And, and, you know, he does love the food, so hopefully he kind of feels the love through the food at the very, very least. What did others say when you first started telling them you were taking pictures of squirrels? You know, I was standing in this kitchen where you and I are right now, and I told my sister, my niece, and my sister's friend what I was going to do. They were sort of the first people that I said, I'm going to do this. And they all looked at me and they said, like, really? Have you lost your mind? Why would you do that? So there wasn't a lot of support initially when I started this project. I'm like, well, no, hang on, hang on. I'll show you some images on the internet. Like, maybe you're just not getting it. (laughs) I mean, come on. It was like, yeah, yeah, I I don't think so, Debbie. Mm -hmm. That's not a direction you should be going in. But I did anyways. What is a... What has taking photographs of squirrels and this whole project taught you about yourself? I think it's taught me that I have more patience than I thought I did. I think that's sort of, that's probably number one. Are you a patient person? Now that's, you you would have to, you know, survey several of my friends and I'm going to say no. They were, they would probably say I'm not a patient person, but for some reason when it comes to nature and this project, I have like patience oozing out of me. I wait and wait for everything. I have more in me um, than I thought I did for for patience and and sticking at something. Thank you so much for letting me come here. Do you mind if we sit for a little bit and see if the squirrel? Look, there he is. He's on he's on the tree. He's behind the branch. He's coming down. He's eyeing it. Is he? Is he? Okay. okay. That's the red back squirrel. He's coming closer. That's the closest he's been. Oh yeah, my gosh. there he goes. Oh, your yeah, okay. Come on. Get on the table. Get on the table. Oh, come on. Don't disappoint. Don't disappoint. And, okay, here we go. Come on, buddy. Come on, buddy. Do it. Go for it. Nope. And away he goes. What an emotional roller coaster. <laughs> <laughs> I really wanted the picture to happen. I know. Well, I think it's impossible to even hear all of that and not want to see one of her photographs. So if you want to see a squirrel, I don't know, portaging, playing the drums, or getting ready for a hockey game, head on over to cbc.ca slash now or never, where we have a slew of her photographs. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. This is Now or Never. I'm Trevor Deneen. And I am Ifi Chiwetelu. And today we are heading into the great outdoors and seeing the power of nature firsthand. But far too often this year, people in British Columbia have been at the mercy of that terrifying power. 
British Columbia is dealing with disaster. More than a month of rain in just a few In late hours. June and early July, a heat wave hit. It was relentless and killed nearly 600 people in British Columbia. In October, what meteorologists call a bomb cyclone knocked out power to tens of thousands of homes. Then, just over a week ago, a small tornado touched down in Metro Vancouver. The first time that's happened in more than five decades. For 12 months, we've experienced the heat dome, the forest fires and the smoke, atmospheric river event. Right now, it's this flooding that's happening so close to us. It's, it's where I worked. I worked in the Fraser Valley for six years. I know those roads and I know so many people there. Hafsa Sally Hu and her husband Ryan Lang live in the lower mainland of British Columbia. And despite having so many extreme climate events hit so close to home, it wasn't until they took a backcountry hike this summer that they realized just what impact climate change could have on their future. We started the hike mid-June this year and ended it on June 21st or 22nd in Mount Robson Park, uh, which is a beautiful provincial park that has the feature is the Berg Lake and the Berg Glacier. And when we got there, we saw parents that had backpacked with their kids, babies, little babies on their backpack. Um, and then I just, I just stood there and I wondered what the kid would see when the kid grows up and what we would see the next time we come back. And then we were, when we were leaving the lake, we were saying goodbye to the glacier and like, we might see you again, but we don't know um, if the future generations will. Hafsa and Ryan are in their early 30s, and having children was always in their plan. But that hike, it made things a whole lot more complicated. Because we were thinking of kids before we got married, and now we're starting to question whether we would even want to have kids at all, or even one kid. Seeing those kids on the trail and wondering what future they would have given just the year that we've had. How about for you, Ryan? Did you know that Hafsa was thinking this? Yeah, we, we've talked about it in the past. And, and um, I'm a little bit more of the optimist, I think, in the couple. <laughs> so, I, you know, yeah, climate change is bad. And, um, you know, it is quite bad out there. And, and overpopulation is certainly a, a component to it. Uh, but I'm optimistic that, you know, if we have one child that, you know, that's having our, our uh, replacement rate and uh, that child will be, be taught by two people who are aware of the situation out there. And we, we teach that child about the impacts of climate change and, and what they can do. And, and who knows, they could be the next brilliant mind that, that develops a carbon capture system that's actually efficient. What, what are those conversations like when you guys sit down and, and start having them with each other? oh hmm yeah i i I understand that he's optimist he's an optimist and i appreciate that because i need some hope um i've been struggling a lot with what's happening so yeah it's been it's been tough to have those conversations for sure yeah 
you mentioned you mentioned hope ryan what what keeps you hopeful throughout this i'm educated as an engineer so i'm always of the mindset that is even as bad as it is out there it is possible for us to turn the ship around and it is absolutely a crisis. It's the most important thing for our leaders to be tackling right now. I, I totally agree with that and believe that. I'm just not certain that we should allow the the climate catastrophe to change the direction of, of our lives overall because we only have one life to live, right? We only have one shot at this. So how does that how does that sit with you, Hafsa? Well, I'm I'm still torn. Um, I see Ryan's side, and then there's a part of me that still wants to have a kid too. It's not that I don't want to. Yeah. What What is your family's thoughts when you tell them about? Oh, you know, we're gonna we're thinking about not having kids because of this. Oh, that was not easy. Um, no. No, uh, I spoke to my mom. So <laughs> I come from a very tr- traditional South Asian family. But it's still easy to talk to my parents about difficult topics. So I brought this up um, and she was really disappointed because she really is looking forward to being a grandma. Not not only that, in our community, it's a taboo topic. When a couple decides not to have a kid, it's it's there's all kinds of um, chatter in the background. (laughs) about why and can they have kids or not and what's happening what the problem is so yeah it's having to talk about climate change being the problem is not something that they think about how about you ryan um yeah it's an assumption in my family that we would have children as well um so we're mostly i think we're taking the avoidance route for now until until we really have to make a decision (laughs) in an ideal future let's say the climate crisis will be addressed and you'll be able to take children on that hike to see those healthy glaciers all beautiful and all their glory not really receding anymore ryan how does it feel to imagine that future with with kids in tow out in nature that that's what I envisioned us doing from the beginning. Uh, Hafs is like, hugely into the outdoors, and uh, now I'm used to it too. <laughs> and we've got you know all our gear and everything. And I've I've seen others carry the the kid on the backpack, and I you know I imagine that we would find a way to stuff everything into her backpack, and I would have a kid on my back, and we'd be you know hiking and and, and showing them the ropes from a young age. So that they're active and, and have a connection to nature as well. Mm-hmm. Just want to be, you know, just want to pass that that on to the next generation. It is fascinating to me because, as we mentioned earlier, nature can be so powerful and overwhelming. What do you think it is about being out in nature that can bring you both? It can bring you both happiness, but also moments of clarity like this one. I think it's because your mind is quieter yeah. when you're out there. And, and you're able to think much more clear, clearly when you're out in nature. That's, what, that's my personal experience because even when I'm hiking, my mind is quiet. And that doesn't happen a lot when I'm at home. Yeah. 
Half so when you're when you are feeling overwhelmed, like you mentioned earlier, just with everything that's going on in the world and, and the climate change, does Ryan's optimism help you deal with that climate anxiety? Like at just at least like just a little bit? It does, yeah. 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 I definitely feed off his energy. <laughs> yeah, so it helps to to have that optimist voice. Thank you both for just taking the time to chat today and honestly like whatever the future has in store for you guys I hope you make the best decision for yourselves and not anybody else. That's right. Yeah. Thank you, Trevor. Thanks, Trevor. Tafsa wrote a beautiful first-person essay, which also includes photographs of the glacier that shifted their thoughts on having a family. You can see that if you go to cbc.ca slash now or never. This is Now or Never. I'm Trevor Deneen. And I'm Ifi Chiwetelu. And today we are going toe-to-toe with nature. And Yves, mm-hmm. I know you've had some battles. You've yes. had some battles with nature. I have. And I really wish, you know, it was going to be a, a beautiful story of a time on a hike when me and an, an elk locked eyes. <laughs> but no. A few weeks ago, there was a mouse oh. in my bedroom. Oh, did you move? Did you sell the home? <laughs> well, first of all, I don't. I, it's not my home to sell. <laughs> but I did manage to trap it in a bag. <gasps> Long story. But I actually took a video. I'm going to share it on our CBC Never Facebook page. <laughs> Just so you too can be inspired. Because I was able to trap it in a bag. And then me and my roommate, we walked several blocks um, and released it uh, in a park. Very kind of you. Yeah. Except for the children that were all playing in that park, it's scattered. What was the other option, Trevor? <laughs> was I supposed to kill it with my bare hands? No, you've already... The- Who do you think I am? You're already the bravest person I know just by trapping it in a bag and carrying it around with you. Like it's a backpack. Well, tell me about your moment. Mine is with a wasp nest that was under my front stairs. And I was terrified because like hundreds of wasps were just flying in and out. And I was just terrified they're going to sting me and my family. And so I did what any brave soul would do. In plus 28 degree heat, I threw on a winter parka, winter pants, mitts, goggles, hat, toque, just so I could be protected. And I went out there with like a laser, like with an electric like wasp zapper and foam and tried to rid our front yard of these wasps. Did it work? Of course it worked. I'm a professional. But then, like a year later, they all came back in another location. And I felt so defeated because I look <laughs> like a maniac out there in winter clothes in the middle of summer trying to defeat these things. You need to try a bag. <laughs> that's, a, that's the real key. I'm, call, I'm calling you next time, <laughs> I guarantee. But that's the nature of the beast, though, because there's so much nature that happens all around us but the scary though is is sometimes that beast that you have to deal with well it can be much bigger than a wasp or even a mouse recent coyote attacks in stanley parker once again prompting a warning from conservation officers it was sunday night around 9 30 and already getting dark and then all of a sudden i was approached by another dog and so i was looking for its humans reached out and it just went poof and growling and I was like wow that's not a dog at all it was a coyote. Coyotes on this street sightings on the road sightings in the ravine sightings in the in my backyard. These run-ins with coyotes have been reported across the country 
from Vancouver's Stanley Park to just last week in the suburbs of Toronto. As more coyotes move into cities and neighborhoods, the higher the risk of altercations, things like biting people and even attacking dogs. It's something Colleen Cassidy St. Clair has been keeping an eye on. She's a professor at the University of Alberta and has studied Edmonton's urban coyotes for more than a decade. Ah, I do have a nickname. I've been named the Queen of Coyotes. It's it's stuck in some quarters. Now my mom calls me that. Today, this queen of coyotes is on a mission to get coyotes and humans to coexist more peacefully, which, ironically enough, involves some rather non-peaceful techniques. There's so much more to learn about urban coyotes. They're so endlessly surprising and flexible in all of their behaviors. Edmonton's like a lot of other cities, in fact, most cities across North America, where there's been a gradual increase in sightings of coyotes and also in experiences with coyotes that that seem kind of bold. They are more visible during the day. They're more common in residential neighborhoods. They're less likely to run away when they see people. Sometimes they even approach people. A couple of people have reported to me over the years that they have seen a coyote stop at a crosswalk and wait for the light to change and then move with the traffic in the direction of the traffic to cross the street. A couple of years ago, many people were reporting to me, and I saw them myself, a pair of coyotes that were hanging out in the park, oh, maybe maybe 50 metres from the door to the school. And eventually a neighbour said, aren't you going to do something about this? I mean, like, you know, you have this project, shouldn't you be the one to do something? So that's really when it occurred to me that I should be doing something. And so I, um, I went and chased those coyotes out of the park, yelling at them, mostly for the benefit of neighbors, bad coyotes, bad. And those coyotes looked behind them and at me while kind of trotting away and then running away as, as if they were thinking, she's crazy. She's just crazy. And that's a tool now that we're encouraging others to use in a community-based program that we call the Urban Coyote Intervention Program. Do you want to go to the place where this actually happened? It's just down the street here a bit. Last year, Colleen debuted a citizen's patrol. More than 70 volunteers across the city that were taught how to safely haze and intimidate coyotes. We're doing this by equipping volunteers with tennis balls, weighted with sand, tied with flagging tape, which flaps when it's uh, flying through the air and we think is intimidating for coyotes. When they see a coyote that allows them to approach within 40 meters in a residential area during the day, the volunteers run at the coyote while shouting and trying to throw a a weighted tennis ball at the coyote in its direction. They're really unlikely to hit the coyote, and even if they do, it's not going to hurt the coyote in any important way. But this intensive kind of hazing, or aversive conditioning as it's known technically, is expected to be quite unpleasant for coyotes. Over time, with a repeated experience like this, they should be more and more mistrustful of people. Hey! Coyote! Get away! Bad coyote! I like to yell bad coyotes so that any passers-by know that I am, well, I hope they know that I'm not just crazy uh, running down the street yelling. But 
It's also very gratifying to see the animals turn tail and run out of the neighborhood. And in my specific examples, they haven't returned that season to the park across the street. That's happened three times now. Our results are preliminary, but they suggest that this can work to make coyotes more wary around people. Member of the Park Allen team, there's a coyote laying down, curled up right there. I think people like the sense that they are doing something to help the situation with urban coyotes to feel more secure in their neighbourhood, and at the same time, they're helping coyotes to be able to coexist with people. We've always existed in ecosystems that include other species, and this view we have of being somehow separate and wired completely differently, as a biologist, it's always struck me as just kind of false. We need to up our game a little bit in the way we exist with other animals if we would like to coexist with them, retaining biodiversity, especially in cities where 80% of people live. We'll need a few more tools to do that in a harmonious way. Hey! Just a reminder, Colleen is a professional, so do not try this at home. But to get a sense of how it works and see a video of Colleen showing off her anti-coyote techniques, make sure to check out the Now or Never Facebook and Instagram pages. People may not know this about you, Trevor, but I think it's time to reveal that you, Trevor Deneen, are obsessed with your lawn. I know. I never I never thought I'd be this person, but once I bought this house, it changed quickly for me. And oh my goodness, the amount of time and effort and money I've put into this lawn to try and make it look respectable is out of hand. But oh my goodness, the pride I feel when I step outside and it is the most beautiful and well-manicured lawn on the block, it can't be beat. <laughs> I I love when you get lost in in just the memories of how beautiful your lawn is. Mm -hmm. But some people would consider all of that work to fight the weeds and the natural growth as a battle against nature. In the town of Smiths Falls, Ontario, one couple has set aside the sod and taken nature's side. I just stepped out my front door and I'm standing on a 10-foot log that's half buried right off my front walk and I'm looking out at a little pond and birch logs stacked on one another leftover pumpkin bits that we just let the squirrels and the yard take back. Beth Uh, and Craig Sinclair live on a residential street in the middle of town and for the last year Craig has been transforming his normally tidy front lawn into a mini old growth forest. And then the main lawn area is seedlings. Some of the seedlings are five feet tall. uh, But right now it just looks like wire cages wrapped around twigs in the ground. Craig's been practicing something called Neowaki Forest Method, planting dozens of trees close together in his yard along with native flowers, wild plants, and a vegetable garden. But not everyone understands what they're trying to do. If you stand on our yard and look at everybody else's, it's green lawn. Ours is very different than everybody else's. I think for me that the challenge has been the social pressure. Like 
our town council voted on our property, whether we could do what we're doing. Like, you know, even people showing up, like neighbors are like, why is bylaw at your house again? You know, like for me, it's been the fear of, um, perhaps what others think of you. Yeah. Us, what others think of our property. Yeah. More than once, Craig and Beth have had to tame parts of their wild lawn after getting neighborhood complaints that they were violating municipal rules. But they are standing their ground because this naturalized front yard has become an unexpected sanctuary for Craig. My serious brain injury 15 years ago, part of my recovery, I started to walk in my neighborhood, just a 15-minute walk down to the river and back. And... After the 15-minute walks, I started to do half hour, 30 minutes, and then I was walking about two hours a day. Uh, My headaches during this time period, a lot of factors, but they went from about 30 a month down to five or six a month. And so these migraines stopped ruling my life, and I could start to look out and see the world in new ways. And I noticed the trees when I walk in the summer in particular, they provide shade, they provide comfort off the road. But I noticed so many getting cut down. All of our ash trees, the emerald ash borer, uh, destroyed is about 30% of the total tree cover. And some of the trees that we lost on our street were enormous. They were uh, six, eight feet around. They were some of the largest trees in town. And watching them come down, I, I had a very visceral, emotional response. I, I wanted to cry for the trees and that that emotion drove me to care about my own property and and what I was doing for the world that I was doing so it started out with maybe I'll just have tall grass and a meadow on my lawn or some wild plants more than other people and then I realized that I could even do better than that and like all I know is last year we started having dump trucks. He'd ride his bike and ask somebody for their wood chips when they were cutting a tree down and we'd get loads of wood and the kids would go out and they'd spread them all over the grass. And he had done, like he put in um, like cardboard boxes. And I guess uh, it's a little embarrassing to say, but my aha moment was because of the stuff that we've had to deal with with the town, I've had to do a lot of research to figure out what's going on and my aha moment is like, oh my gosh, he's he's not the only one. I was going to say he's not crazy, but he's not the only one. <laughs> that this is actually that other people do this, and so we visit. We've helped plant in Kingston. They were doing a Mahawaki forest, three of them, and um, so we went and helped a few weekends ago, and they did exactly what he did. And and so as I've gotten to know some of these gardeners, because it wasn't my thing, um, so I've just really learned a lot that people, other people, do this and. Um, unfortunately for us, we're kind of the forerunners in our small town. I don't always want to be that forerunner, but I, I think it's paving the ground so that three houses down, somebody can do this and be like, look what I did too, you know. It's neat to see to see kids come by and be so excited and um, people are curious and Craig more than I, but I'll be outside and somebody's like, what's this plant here? Or they're like using their phone to Google to see what their, the plant is that we have. Like last summer we had columbine flowers that people really liked. And, um, you know, other people stop and say, oh, can I, can I have some of those seeds? 
Craig is very knowledgeable about trees and so he's kind of become the neighborhood expert about trees so people will come to us and and seek him out and talk about their trees like if it, it has an illness or what so it's been like it's been an amazing way to get to know our neighbors especially in the midst of covid so i look out and i walk across all of it every day it's peaceful it's calming it it feels feels like the home I want. People frame what's in front of a home as like a haircut in the military. It should be flat and straight and equal and coordinated and, and nobody looks too different. We're all kind of fitting in, uh, in ticky-tack houses, ticky-tack rows. But for me, that wasn't enough. In five years, I expect that my six persimmons plants will have persimmons. And, and I know that in 10 to 15 years after that, some of my walnuts and butternut trees will begin to drop fruit for me. And then 30 years after that, I anticipate some of my oak trees will begin to drop acorns. <laughs> I will not walk away from this. <laughs> They are so determined. In fact, they shared some pictures with us of their yard, which if I didn't know any better, I would think they were just nature wildlife shots. We'll share those with you on our CBC Now or Never and Instagram pages. Can I just say that there is no one, and I mean no one I'd rather take on nature with, than the now or never team of producers that we have with us, Eves. Sarah Tate. Thought you were going to say me. Well, you as well. You're part of the team. <laughs> but as well, Sarah Tate, Amy Hadley, Andrew Friesen, Claire Bonnyman, and Gloria Omateo. And if you are still thinking about Andrew Fung from the start of the show doing battle with raccoons that keep breaking into his garbage bins, <laughs> just trust that he is very much still on top of it. I don't want to come off like sounding like uh, like I'm so ridiculous, but before I go to bed, I do poke my head out that window. I turn the light on just to see if they're there. Yeah. Because my wife did get catch footage footage a few times of them getting into the bin, and like you like to see it, you want to see it, you like to have that footage because then you have that footage and people don't think you're lying about it. People don't think you're like making this up. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.